Well, you did a good job drowning out the, the rain, and I don't hear it at the moment. We'll see. They may have to crank the, the mic every now and then if it keeps up, but it's good to see you tonight as we work our way through the, the book of Revelation this evening. We're coming back to the section here in this book that deals with the wrath of God as, as been revealed by God through the Apostle John to us. Remember by the, the point in the book that we're at here in Revelation 13, the good news is that as the church, we will not be part of this wrath. We believe that the New Testament teaches clearly that the rapture of church will come before the tribulation period, and during these seven years of, of great wrath being poured out upon the earth, the, the church is not here. The, the judgments of this book are for those who refuse to accept that Jesus is willing to, to serve as their substitute, that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took this wrath of God upon him. These, this wrath is for those who are steadfast in the rebellion against God. They refuse to accept Jesus as their substitute. We follow the, the flow of the revelation through two of three sets of judgments that, that form up the seven years of tribulation. All seven seals, which is the first set of judgment, they've been opened by this point. The seventh trumpet has blown, and that makes up the, the next set of judgments. And as the seventh trumpet blows, we know that that seventh trumpet is the final set of judgments because the seventh seal became the seven trumpet judgments. The, seven, the seventh trumpet will become the seven bowl judgments. So we're poised for that final set of judgments to, to fall. That will bring the, the return of Christ. That will bring the culmination to the, this period of wrath. That, that will bring it to a completion. But, but once more, just as the tribulation timeline was beginning to inch forward with the, the seventh trumpet blown in, in chapter 11, we encounter another pause in the event. A pause that takes us kind of outside of time. Time is put on pause for a moment, frozen, and, and now we're given a little more of a backstory. Uh, a backstory that we need so that we can understand the final judgments that, that God will bring upon the earth. In, in this case, when we have this pause and we're looking at this backstory, we're actually in the process of looking at several backstories. There are several scenes in John's vision that, that run from chapter 12 through chapter 15, and, and these chapters feel really like kind of mini-stories as, as they're interjected into this larger story about this tribulation period. These mini-stories give us this background. They, they help us understand from various perspectives how we got to this point in history where God is pouring out, or is going to pour out his final judgments upon rebellious man. The, the last time when we looked at the book a couple weeks ago, we considered chapter 12 where we saw a synopsis of what I called at that time the war of the dragon. Satan, God's arch enemy, he's called the dragon in that chapter. We, we had a quick sketch of, of his attempts to undermine God's program of redemption. John saw Satan historically seek to destroy the, the nation of Israel to prevent the Messiah from being born. Obviously, Satan failed in, in that endeavor, then John sees at the midpoint of the tribulation, right at the halfway mark, John um, saw that Satan will be expelled from heaven. And he will then vent all of his rage, all of his hatred that Satan has at God, he'll vent that upon God's people. At this point, he knows his time to inflict harm is limited, so that just exasperates the amount of vengeance and wrath and, and rage that, that he displays. And while Satan is trying to pour his, his vengeance here upon God's people, God protects the nation of Israel. So the chapter closed, chapter 12 closed out with Satan looking to make war with what the chapter called the rest of God's children. That, that brings us to chapter 13 for this evening as we pick up. Satan's goal is to make war with the rest of the people of God since he's unable to touch Israel at this point in time. They're protected by God divinely. Yet Satan is not going to directly make war against the people of God. Satan will use agents. He will use agents through whom he continues to try to persecute Israel if given the chance. But Israelite and Gentile believers, they're outside the protected area 
especially Gentiles, he will persecute as much as he can. Much like Satan worked through an agent back in the Garden of Eden, he worked through the serpent there. He, he will again work through others to try to achieve his purpose. We, we should remember as we work our way through the chapter tonight that, that Satan is always the great mimic. He, he's a, a great impersonator. He, he's an imitator. His career aspiration from, from the beginning has been to be like God. That's his goal, is to imitate God. Well, in this chapter, we'll see he continues to, to try to imitate God by setting up really an imitation trinity. Satan is going to cast him role, his, himself in the role of God the Father, and he'll call forth individuals then that will play the role of the Messiah and the Spirit of God. John, in, in the vision we're looking at tonight, will call these individuals that Satan sets up, he will call them beasts. That's why tonight we have the coming of the beasts. So let's begin and look at our chapter this evening. In, in the first ten verses of chapter 13, we meet the first beast. We, we have the arrival of, of the first beast. Follow along if you have your Bibles. Revelation chapter 13. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now, as we start looking at this chapter this evening, there, there's a lot of debate as to where that first, chap, or that first sentence that I read, where it should be attached. The, the dragon stood on the sand of the sea. The, the sentence depicts the dragon from chapter 12 positioning himself so that he can call forth the first beast. And the, the debate is, should this be really tied then to chapter 12, or should it be... Where the history of the dragon is seen, or should be tied to chapter 13, where the beast appears. Um, I personally would put it to the previous one because as you look at the very next sentence, we have our key words. Um, the English versions are, are rather evenly divided where they put that sentence, but I think it goes with chapter 12 because then I saw that, that's our key words, I saw are familiar to us by, by this time. We know from this phrase that we've seen over and over that indicates that John's vision is shifting. He's, he's been looking, he's been seeing something from one perspective, and now in the Spirit he's being moved to another perspective. He sees something different. A new scene is appearing in the vision. Essentially, John is receiving this entire revelation of the tribulation, the entire seven years and all the backstories, everything. It's one long vision, but there's a lot of scenes in it. And it keeps breaking down in these various sections from different perspectives. In this case, his, his perspective shifts and his attention is drawn to the sea by the dragon that's standing on the seashore. As he looks at the sea... He sees a beast arising, a, a beast having ten horns and seven heads with, with ten crowns on the horns and blasphemous names on the heads. I don't know about you, but it's hard to picture this. If you do a quick Google search for the first beast, you will find all kinds of artistic renditions of people's imaginations trying to depict this, but it's, just looking at those shows you how hard it is. I can't imagine exactly what it looks like. It's hard to picture but we are by now becoming familiar with 
apocalyptic, I couldn't say the word also, an apocalyptic imagery. We've seen that throughout this whole book, this this fantastic imagery that, that is used. So we can expect that the more fantastic the imagery is, the more we know it symbolically represents something. Well, here we, we discover as we look through this, this beast with all this fantastic imagery around it, it, the beast represents an individual. This beast is the future Antichrist, the, the individual that's presented in other places throughout the New Testament as coming with the, the activity and the power of Satan for the purpose of deceiving the world. I'll talk more about the activities of the Antichrist in a bit, but let's first try to work our way through the symbolism. While it's hard to picture what this beast looks like, we do know that symbols are usually given for a reason. And and we have a lot of symbolism in verses 1 and 2 as the beast is described. There's been endless suggestions throughout church history on who and and what these symbols all take, but I'll just tell you what I believe they mean. I believe the first, uh, first of all, the seven heads, they represent seven successive Gentile kingdoms, worldwide kingdoms, large nations. And I don't think there's much doubt about this point. Revelation chapter 17, when we get there, verses 9 through 12, seem to express this quite clearly, although... I will admit, Revelation 17, when we get there, it still uses symbolic language. But that symbolic language isn't near as obscure as what we see here. It seems to be very clear that each head represents a different kingdom. Traditionally, the the seven empires have been taken to be Egypt as the first one. Then came Assyria, then Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece, and then Rome. John, of course, was living under the the Roman Empire at the time he he received this revelation, the the first five of those six initial kingdoms, those were historic by the time John was on the scene. And and the sixth empire, the the kingdom of Rome, that was the one he was living in. The seventh kingdom, represented by the heads, is a future kingdom, often called the, the revived Roman Empire. And it embodies much of the strength of the predecessors. When it comes on scenes, it will inherit from all of the others some of their strength. In fact, verse 2 is understood as indicating that the beast, the, the, the person that this beast represents, this individual, he'll be the ruler of this final empire. And as the ruler, he'll share many of the characteristics of the previous world empires that were represented by the animals, the the leopard and the bear and the, the lion, those were animals that are in Daniel 7 then. They represented some of these kingdoms. And he's going to have s- their strength, their power, their, their characteristics of, of Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. Now when we see him come out of the sea, that he arises from that, I, I believe that's simply another way of referring to the abyss. Uh, according to Revelation 11 that we looked at, Several weeks back, Revelation 11, chapter, or chapter 11, verse 7, as well as 17, verse 8, that the beast is released for his mission from the abyss. He comes out of the, the abyss. The, the, the ten horns and then and the ten crowns, they represent ten coexisting smaller kingdoms that form this final empire, the seventh empire, the seventh kingdom. They're... they're Ten coexisting kingdoms that correlate into one empire, and they have respective kings that the beast then ends up ruling overall during the tribulation period. Where things get interesting is in verse 3, where John sees one of the heads as if it's been slain. The, the word slain, what makes it interesting is that's the same word that's used in reference to the lamb in Revelation chapter 5 6. Remember I said, Satan strives to be the great imitator. It appears that God allows Satan to imitate the resurrection of Christ. He allows Satan to raise this person, this ruler, from the dead. That's what it means here when it says his fatal wound was healed. It means, that's what it means they came back from the abyss. He died, he went to the abyss, and Satan brings him back to life from there. That, that's 
fits really with the general idea we see in a lot of Old Testament prophecies. For example, in, in Joel 2 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, Daniel chapter 11, we, we've got these various Old Testament prophecies that all picture this, this end-time individual that's going to rule over the world, that's, that's going to be the, the final embodiment of Satan's power, the, the Antichrist that he comes to be called. And they all seem to agree that in the end time, there's going to be a war between... It's, in Ezekiel, at least, is called the king of the north, uh, referred to as Gog, and the Antichrist. And that will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation period. In, in the battle there at the midpoint of the tribulation between probably two or three of these ten kings that made up the you know, coexisting kingdoms of the world empire, during this, this battle, the Antichrist receives a fatal wound and dies at the, the middle of tribulation. But then Satan brings him back to life. And as he comes back to life, the Antichrist defeats the ruler of Gog, the one that thought for a moment he had victory. After all, he killed the, the, the king he was fighting against, and that king comes back to life and kills him instead. If we bring all of that kind of background from the Old Testament here to verse 3, we can understand why the whole earth was amazed. They, they saw this king, possibly, as I said, one of the co-ruling co kings of ten uh, at this point, the king who had kind of set himself apart maybe as the first among equal or at least was trying to exert himself as, as the first among them. They saw him shake off a, a fatal wound and come back to life. So they rightly wonder, the world wonders, who is able to wage war with him? You can't even kill him. Even killing him is insufficient to, to guarantee a victory. This guy cannot be killed. That's what it would appear like to the world. Remember, this is also the time frame, if, if you remember from when we discussed chapter 11 a few weeks back, this is the same time frame where this Antichrist kills the two witnesses of God. These two witnesses that God had divinely appointed, if you recall, that had spent the first three and a half years of the tribulation period in the city of Jerusalem, uh, apparently um, protected by God's supernatural power. They were unable to be killed, even though the whole world was trying to put them to death because they kept announcing God's judgments that were falling and they were calling down uh, fire on their enemies. They were showing supernatural power. Well, at the midpoint, after three and a half years of, from the world's perspective, them terrorizing the world with, with divine judgments, the Antichrist, after he rises from the dead, he puts them to death. So, with all that, the, the world is simply awed by his power. His power is supernatural. This first beast does have supernatural power. Clearly, his power comes from Satan. His authority comes from Satan. Where it's apparently clear even to the, the world that his power comes from Satan because his resurrection and his victory cause, we're told, the whole earth to worship the dragon as well as the beast. So the world begins to worship Satan along with the beast. Everyone is willing to follow a victor with the abilities he displays, this ability to come back to life. By the midpoint of the tribulation, the, the world has been devastated by the first set of divine judgments. Remember, let me get our timeline straight here. You know, we are near the end of the tribulation. We only have the final bold judgments to come that, we're, that will come very quickly. We're somewhere in the last half of the tribulation. The first set of judgments brought us to the midpoint. Well, now we've backed up in time to see how did we get from the midpoint to where we're at for God's final wrath to about coming, uh, being about ready to come down. And we're going back all these things that happened right at the midpoint that put the Antichrist into the position of rule against God uh, on the point of, of fighting against God. We're, we're backing up to that. So the Antichrist gets his power from Satan. He gets his authority from Satan and he makes the world know that. So the whole world is worshiping both the Antichrist and Satan. The Antichrist then blasphemes God. He speaks arrogant words and blasphemies against God. He blasphemes both God and his tabernacle. He mocks those who dwell in heaven. He makes war against the saints on the earth. For Beginning at the midpoint of tribulation there where he is the, the 
unquestioned ruler of the earth. He vents Satan's hatred against God by being the, the person that sets in motion all of this animosity, all of this great, severe persecution against the people of God. In fact, verse 7 says that he overcomes the saints. That means he puts the saints to death. He begins martyring countless numbers. Remember, we saw in earlier chapters that there'd be thousands and thousands of martyrs, those who held to the faith coming out of tribulation. Well, the beast is leading the charge to bring about their death. Look carefully at at verse 7, who the beast overcomes. We're told that he overcomes saints from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. I draw your attention to those four words because those are the same divisions of humanity in in which the redemptive work of the Lamb was praised in in chapter 5, verse 9, where if you look back to chapter 5, verse 9, one of the, the passages I love to meditate on every time we take the Lord's table together, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. This is a praise, a song given to the Lamb of God. For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The beast is overcoming saints. He's overcoming people that represent the, the same divisions of humanity where the redemptive work of Christ ha- has been effective. He is overcoming saints, killing them everywhere they are found on the earth, within every group of humanity, every tribe, every people, every tongue. He's searching out believers everywhere. And as he does so, he's receiving worship from everyone on the earth for killing these believers. He's receiving worship from everyone, John says, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the land the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now that's a, a mouthful. If you look at that phrase, whose name has been, not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, life of the Lamb who has been slain. There's clearly implications here for the eternal uh, destiny of those who are divinely elected there in verse 8. Individual names you are... In, written down in this book of life. They're, they're placed there before the world was created. Uh, they're, they're a record of those for whom the Lamb was slain for. They're, there's a lot of implications here for the eternality of divine election. We, we could spend a lot of time this evening talking about divine election just from ber- verse 8, but instead I want to spend a few minutes looking at a, a broader topic than divine election. I want to talk for just a few minutes about divine sovereignty in the appropriate response to it. Divine sovereignty just means that the God's free to do what God chooses to do. He's free to act as he chooses to act. And divine sovereignty means God has the power to do what he chooses to do. Not only is he free to do it, he's able to do it. Divine election is choosing of, of these individuals so they can record them in this book of life. That, that's just one example in this passage of, of God's divine sovereignty. But, but there are others examples to, in the same passage here. In this text, in, in these verses, we're, we're meeting the person that will be set up by Satan as the counterfeit Christ. This person rises from the dead. This person sets himself up for worship. This person kills believers. As we're looking at this, it, it appears that this person, this Antichrist, is in control of events at this time in history. He is in control. And yet John leaves us a couple clues. Very, they're, they're somewhat subtle, but he leaves us a couple subtle clues that that's really not what's going on. This person is not really in control. He leaves us subtle clues in the form of a couple very important passive verbs. Look first at verse 5. The Antichrist is speaking blasphemies. The reason that the Antichrist is, is speaking blasphemes is expressed as there was given to him a mouth for this purpose. There was given to him a mouth to speak blasphemies. 
Who gave him the mouth to do so? A passive verb says someone else is the active agent. Who gave him the mouth? In other words, who allows the Antichrist to speak in this matter? The, the implication from there was given to him, the implication is that there is one who has more authority, who has granted the Antichrist the right to blaspheme. Now, we might say Satan is the one who gave him this right because we're told that he's operating under the power and authority of Satan. We, we might say that, except that John tells us that this right is given for a specific duration of time, 42 months, for the second half of the tribulation period, from the midpoint to the end of the seven years, that's the specific period of time this Antichrist is given the authority to blaspheme God. The, this limited duration, it clues us into the fact that God is the one allowing the Antichrist to have this moment. Satan would have no reason to limit someone who's blaspheming against God. Satan is the blasphemer. That's what he does as part of his career is blaspheme God. He would never limit that. But there's a limit placed on this individual. Just as God is the one who allowed Satan to hurt Job all the way back in the Old Testament when we see Job have all these things done to him, his, his family destroyed, his, his riches taken from him, all at God's permission. Satan hurts him only at God's permission. Here God is allowing the Antichrist to rise to power. And as part of that rise to power, God is allowing him for a limited time to blaspheme we need to bring the same understanding to another passive verb. When we look at verse 7, we see it was given to him to make war with the saints. The Antichrist is going to go and he is going to war against the saints that are scattered throughout the earth. He is going to seek them everywhere they're at, everywhere they're, they're hiding. He is going to try to find them and put them to death. But only because God allows him to do so. The Antichrist is not operating outside of God's divine sovereignty. So with this understanding, knowing that this is God's permissive will, that, that he would blaspheme and, and persecute the saints, overcome them, even put them to death, how are the saints to respond? Verses 9 and 10 give the answer. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. In other words, listen up, saints. Here's what you are to do. Here's what you're to do during this time when, when God is telling them, when I give this permission to the Antichrist, when I give him this time, here's what you are to do. Listen up so that you know what you're to do during the last half of the tribulation. The, the first part of verse 10 is hard to translate, but I think the NIV and the ESV, they, they have the right idea. The NIV translates it. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. In other words, what God has determined will happen to the saints, it will happen. It's God's will. It will happen. It cannot be avoided. This is what their destiny will be. There is going to be extreme trials. There is going to be captivity. There is going to be martyrdom. There is going to be hard times. So how should the saints respond? As the NIV puts it, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That's how the NIV translates the last phrase of that verse, and I think that's a very good translation. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he's going to go. If anyone is to die by the sword, be killed by the sword, then with the sword he will be killed. This is what will happen. God has determined what will happen. How do you respond? With patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. The saints are to accept with endurance and faith God's plan for their lives. Saints will be killed, but saints must not waver in their faith that God is in control. Even their death is part of his sovereign plan. This beast, this antichrist, is God's servant, faithfully fulfilling God's plan whether the antichrist knows it or not. The antichrist is seeking to serve Satan. But that doesn't 
keep him from still being God's servant. Now, we might think this sounds awful, horrendous. And frankly, from a physical perspective, undoubtedly it is awful. These saints will die in an awful manner. They will go through an unbelievable time of, of suffering, it appears. But we need to look deeper and think deeper. We need to realize that while this physically looks awful, this is also gracious and merciful on the part of our God. I mentioned at the outset that the church will be removed before the tribulation begins. That means that every single one of these people that will be martyred, every one of these saints who are killed by the Antichrist, they were unbelievers somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five years ago. When the rapture occurred and tribulation happened, they were rebels against God. They were unbelievers. And yet, rather than judge them for their unbelief, God has extended them the opportunity to hear and to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even as the judgments are falling down upon the earth, God has put witnesses there, the two witnesses that were proclaiming the truth of God in Jerusalem, the 144,000 we saw earlier, Israelites, 12,000 from every tribe, spread throughout the earth, proclaiming the gospel message of the Messiah. God's put witnesses there, and he's allowed these saints now to have the opportunity to hear and to respond. They may be dying physically, but they will live eternally because of God's grace and mercy. In God's divine sovereignty, God is seeing to it. He is ensuring that this occurs even as he is bringing his judgments to their culmination. That's wrapped up here in verses 9 and 10. God is gracious and merciful even amid the judgments. So in the first 10 verses, we have the arrival of the first beast. In in verse 8 and following, we have the arrival of the second beast. So pick up or in the final eight verses, not in verse eight, in the final eight verses, we have the arrival of the, the second beast. Pick up in verse 11 with me. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. The the second beast completes the the trio that's oftentimes referred to as the unholy trinity. Satan mimicking God the Father, the first beast mimicking God the Son, and, and this second beast then mimicking God the Holy Spirit. Often this beast is referred to as the false prophet. That's how he's referred to in a few chapters in coming up in the future here. Similar to how the Holy Spirit points people to Christ, this false prophet points people to the Antichrist. His purpose is to magnify the the worship of the the people on the earth of the first beast. That's his goal. Unlike the first beast, this second beast arises from the earth rather than the sea. Uh, Most likely this indicates in some fashion he's inferior. He certainly is not coming out of the abyss as one who had been killed. But, but beyond that, I don't know what to make of the fact that he's coming from a different place. He has two horns rather than ten. And these horns resemble a lamb's horn. This likely points to that he has some level of authority, but much less than that of the Antichrist. Again, I'm not sure if we need to make more than that. He, he speaks with the authority of Satan, we're told. He, he operates with the authority of the Antichrist. And 
and operates under the authority of the Antichrist, all designed to influence the people of the earth to worship the Antichrist. The Antichrist is pointing to Satan. The second beast points to the first beast. Again, you see the mimicking of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit points to Christ, and Christ points us as the image of, of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He points our worship to the Father. This second beast, he can perform, according to verse three or 13, rather, great signs. Specifically, he says he calls down fire from heaven. Seemingly, he's able to match the two witnesses. At the midpoint of tribulation, the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, he kills the two witnesses. If you remember, three days later, they come back to life. God raises them from dead and then takes them to heaven, ascends them before the people of the earth. Well, looks like immediately after the the second beast comes on the scene and he's able to mimic them. And he's able to perform the same, same type of things, calling fire down from heaven. So it's not too hard to imagine how the signs that he's able to perform, how that will aid in developing this worship that's centered on the beast, or on the Antichrist. You know, he ha- he's able to do signs similar to, to these witnesses. He says, worship this guy, this one who's raised from the dead, he, it all works together for that. For, so the Antichrist rises from the dead he, and, and kills these. They, you combine all that. These things all work together to deceive the people on earth into thinking the Antichrist is God. He is a God of, of some kind. And the second beast points to him with these divine signs he says he's doing under his power. It looks like divine signs under his power. He says we need to worship him, and the people are deceived by all that. And this false prophet, he, he jumps on the mood of the moment, and he calls on the people of the earth to not just, own, not just worship the, the Antichrist, but let's make an image of him. Let's make a statue of the Antichrist. Most likely, in a way, of the Antichrist. It seems like that's the, Im- the idea behind the image of the, the first beast. Let's make this statue that, that can be worshipped. We, we naturally probably think of a large statue like Nebuchadnezzar created in, in Daniel chapter 3 where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow down and worship that, that statue but then refused. This statue is probably similar with one great exception to, or one great difference between what Nebuchadnezzar was able to create and this one. This statue, the false prophet, is able to go massively beyond by giving the breath of life to the statue, to the image. Now there's debate as to whether the breath of life means that the statue comes to life in some sort of fashion or if it only simulates life by speaking. In either case, it's most effective. Whatever it is, it's very effective. People either worship the statue or they were killed. Of course, notice John, again, is careful in verse 15 to switch to a passive verb. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast. God alone is the source of life. God alone is able to grant this. And so God is the one that would have to grant this ability to the false prophet. Not even Satan has the power of life unless God assigns it to him. So God is using the false prophet here, again, as his instrument He's using the, the false prophet, even though the false prophet is raging in rebellion against God, God's using him as his instrument of deception to bring judgment upon people who are willfully rebelling against God. Using Old Testament terminology, God is using the false prophet to harden the people in their sin. The other thing that the false prophet does, not only does he... Um, serve as catalyst for the worship of the Antichrist, he also develops a unified financial system for the whole earth. He unites worship and, and economics together into one entity. Only those who worship the beast will be able to buy and sell. It, it doesn't matter what rank in society the, the person is, the Antichrist worship, uh, worship of the Antichrist is the requirement to engage in commerce of any kind. The indication that, that the person is on board with this program will be this infamous mark of the beast that I'm sure we've all heard about many times. This mark that's either on the right hand or the forehead, it will demonstrate that this person is in alignment with the world 
religion that's overseen by the false prophet, the world religion that, that is focused on the Antichrist and worshiping Satan. This mark will in some fashion reflect the name of the Antichrist in numeric form. It produces a number of 666 as it um, reflects the, the Antichrist name in some fashion. Uh, and surely you are all aware of the endless speculation surrounding this number. It's been around for decades, centuries even. And we can see how technology could work into authenticating people by mark of some sort and integrating things seamlessly into a financial system, although I have to admit myself personally, I, I don't find a lot of the speculations convincing that they're so often off or that the mark is some sort of a barcode tattoo or a microchip of some kind that's inserted or something of that nature. Um, it could be something like that, but I kind of doubt it. We have to remember by the middle of tribulation when this is all coalescing, and things begin really moving forward, by that point in time, the world has been massively impacted by death and destruction. A series of judgments has fallen, so I've got to imagine that the world has massively devolved from a technological perspective. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. All it takes is a, a hurricane or something of that nature to strike a city, and technology just goes kaput. How about after you've had multiple cataclysmic events across the, the earth and you've lost a quarter of the world's population. The devastating judgments that the world has endured and, and the massive amounts of global fatalities, it, to me in a way, it suggests it's more likely that this is just some sort of low-tech mark that ha, than, than a high-tech solution. It, it's just a mark that gives a visible indicator that this person is a worshiper of the Antichrist is visible, is placed in visible fashion. This person is marked as one who worships the Antichrist. Now, throughout the centuries, there's also been endless speculation uh, about who 666 points to. There, there's incredibly complex speculations that have been produced trying to, to map this number to various people. Uh, we, we all probably understand that in the Greek that John used, letters also represented numbers, so they could calculate by a name, just convert the letters of name to a number and add those together, and you came up with a total. And people take the idea and speculate across history that, well, this is going to be somebody specific. Well, the endless speculation alone should clue us into the fact that attempts to do that are useless. What, what seems very likely is that there will not be any way that we can map a person to this number until that person is on the scene, when, until that person is rising to power. At that time, this number in verse 18 serves as a warning for those who will also be on the scene. It, it will serve as such a strong warning that there will be no way for them to miss the fact that receiving the mark that allows them to buy and sell is directly tied to worshiping this, this individual. This number will make that very clear that, that if they refuse this mark, they are identifying themselves as those who are not worshiping the Antichrist. They are refusing this mark because they're putting a, a line in the sand, so to speak, that they are standing on the side of God and they will only be faithful to God. That the number will allow them to have no doubt that that is what this mark means. God, through John, has revealed sufficient information so that those who are here at that time need not be deceived. They can have the knowledge that there is no doubt that they are taking the stand they must take when they refuse the mark. So we see in the last half of the chapter the arrival of the second beast in, in the final verses here. At the midpoint of the tribulation, we have these beasts then arise, the the. Un, the unholy trinity here forms up. That's the background information we're given in this chapter. We're, we're still, as I said at the outset, we're waiting for the final judgments to fall, but, but we know they're going to fall into a context in which the Antichrist is on the scene, the Antichrist is serving as the agent of destruction for the, the dragon, his, he and his false prophet are working to, to create a, a system of worship that worships Satan rather than God, ultimately, uh, and the, the false prophet is working to deceive the world's population through 
deception of religion and control of the economy so that they will fall for this false worship. They will fail to respond to the gospel message of others. A failure to worship God guarantees that God's judgment will fall on them. Satan's war that he rages or wages there at the end of chapter 12, as he say, goes off, make war with the rest of mankind. Really, what we're seeing in this chapter, this war he wages is a war of deception. Deception to worship one who presents himself as the Messiah who rose from the dead, a false prophet who says, points to him and has this, this statue that seems to, or has life of some kind all wrapped together to say, you need to worship this God, not the true God that is the God of the Bible. Of course, the false prophet will never call him the true God, will he? Now, where I see an application for us in this passage, um, we have no fear of these events, as I said, so, so we have to look differently. We, assuming we know Jesus Christ, we, as our Savior, we need to look for principles that will play out as an application for our lives. So where I see an application is in the deeper implication of the principles. It's nice to know these details. I, probably as we read this, it, it scratches a, a little bit of our curiosity itch about what will happen. There's a reason that Revelation is a popular book often, but as I was reading and I was studying these details, trying to think a little bit further and draw out principles for us that apply to us here and now, I, I could not help but think about how the Apostle John's gave us words in one of his earlier letters. His words in 1 John 2.18, he writes, Children, this is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, well, we've just seen a lot about the Antichrist tonight. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. John warns us that, that even now, before we get to the end time tribulation, even now, there are many Antichrists. That who have appeared. In other words, we should anticipate that there are men with the same spirit as this ultimate Antichrist, the, the, the beast that will come in the tribulation period, the one who will be personally energized by Satan's power. We should anticipate there are men now with the same spirit and with the same goal as the final Antichrist, the goal to deceive people so they, they do not worship God. So let's think about that goal. Satan never changes. His purpose is always to destroy God's people because they they bear the image of God. And Satan really does not vary his methods. He uses the same methods continually as he tries to deceive people so that they'll worship something other than God because worshiping anything other than God achieves his goal of them ultimately worshiping him. So these many Antichrists, these smaller Antichrists, they're living among us. They're ones who have this spirit of final Antichrist, and they are serving as Satan's tool of deception today. That, that means to me that the principle that we should extract from this chapter is that we must always guard against Satan's deceptions. We must always guard against Satan's deception. Satan wants to deceive us. He wants us to worship something other than God, which, as I said, ultimately boils down to worshiping Him instead of God. Are we on guard? Are we looking out for this deception? Think about the methods that Satan will employ in his final deception. He will set up a false religion that appears to match up the works of the true God. All around us, Satan is doing this today to lesser extents and lesser forms. There there are all sorts of religions that are directly competing with Christ. Other religions throughout the world that are competing with Christ. But there are also countless religions that are attempting largely to mimic Christ. They, They call themselves Christian and mimic Christ. But they do not point us to Christ. Just one example, much of the charismatic movement drives for an emphasis on what they call spirit power events, speaking in tongues and healings and some such thing. They, they, they claim that these things are evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. 
And yet when you examine things carefully, all the focus is on the so-called spirit in his work. Usually with the result, when you really start poking into these, these uh, active charismatic churches, usually the result is the Bible is largely set aside. All the energy is, is spent on pursuing these so-called works of the Spirit. The problem with that is that the real Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. Never. His role is to point people to Christ. The Holy Spirit magnifies Christ. And the way the Holy Spirit magnifies Christ is he draws people into the Word of God because the Holy Spirit helped create the Word of God. It's the inspired revelation of Christ. Anything that takes people a different direction from drawing you into Scripture towards Christ is a deception. A deception that that we must be on guard against. Satan is at work. He's working through many people who already have the spirit of the final Antichrist that we've met this evening in our text. We must always be on guard against Satan's deceptions. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed help us be men and women that are on guard, that we are wise, that we spot deceptions that are out there We know that the way to spot the deception, the the sure way is to spend much time in your word, focusing on what you have revealed of yourself, knowing the truth. Father, we thank you that we do not need to fear these final days of the, the ultimate Antichrist. But Father, even now we are living in days that are leading towards that. And the tendency that we often have is to fear our days, but we do not need to because you are sovereign. As we saw in our chapter, you are in control of all things. They are accomplishing your purpose, and we are to respond with patient endurance and faithfulness. I pray that you would help us to do so as we guard ourselves from deception. In Christ's name we pray, amen.